Hello there, my good friends. How are you doing? I hope you're well. Welcome to D4, D&D Deep Dive. This is the show where each week we take a deep dive into one, sometimes two, specific character builds for Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. We crunch numbers about them, we theorycraft about them, not in the attempt to tell you the right way to play a character or the best way to play a character, but to explore one potential option of how to build a particular character in the hopes of creating something that is both powerful but also really fun to play in-game. So if you enjoy creating characters for D&D almost as much as you enjoy playing the actual game itself, then welcome home. This is absolutely where you belong, and I am absolutely thrilled that you're here. So thanks for being here. My name is Colby, and I'll be your host. We have a lot to get into today, so I'm just going to jump right in. Several months ago, my good friend Dallin, who um, you might see show up on the channel, uh, Aves and Cuando, decided that he wanted to play an arcane archer in our Tales of Anaria campaign that we have on uh, this channel over here. So check it out if you're interested. I remember when he was first telling me about it, and I was trying really hard not to be like that guy, right? In my head, I was like, are you sure about that? <laughs> I mean, you should probably pick something else. And out loud, I was like, uh, you sure about that? <laughs> but then, no, no, that's totally cool. Like, you should absolutely, you know, play what you want, whatever sounds fun to you. That's the right way to play D&D, right? Even if the subclass that you're picking is a little challenged. So yeah, I think I, like many others, had this impression that the Arcane Archer was a substandard choice for a fighter pick, mechanically speaking, anyway. And yes, at first glance especially, there are a number of things about the subclass that stand out as being potentially problematic, right? First off, the defining feature of the subclass, the arcane shot that they get, is only usable rules as written anyway with a long bow or a short bow. As a result, then, in order to benefit from the most important and, I think, powerful feature of the subclass, you can't use what is arguably the most powerful ranged weapon in the game, the hand crossbow. Powerful, of course, because of the crossbow expert feat, which lets you get an extra attack with a bonus action that you can't get from other ranged weapons, right? And then when you couple that, especially with the sharpshooter feat, then you're just getting a lot more potential damage when you use the hand crossbow with those two feats than you could with other ranged weapon feats. This is not big news for most of you, I think. So many would argue that if you want to be the best ranged weapon damage dealing character that you can be, you're better off ignoring the arcane archer and instead going for a strong ranger or maybe even battlemaster fighter, etc., who can just use sharpshooter feet, crossbow expert feet, and then have other cool benefits from the subclass of their choice, right? But ever since Dallin started playing this Arcane Archer several months ago, I've been thinking about how I would try to, like, optimize an Arcane Archer build. And I think if you take some time with the Arcane Archer, you find a lot of value with one of their Arcane shots in particular. And so the question, I think, becomes, how can we make the best use of our bonus action if we wanted to build an arcane archer? There are plenty of things that you could do, of course, but for me, the most interesting and powerful solutions are ones that also synergize really well with their most powerful arcane shot. And I think that comes via some interesting multi-class options. Now, as for what we should be 
building for when using the arcane archer. To me, the character just screams Nova damage or burst damage. I mean, the fighter's inherent action surge that they already are going to have, obviously, plus the only twice per short rest arcane shots make me think building a character that really tries to take advantage of and build on those limited use, big damage resources in an attempt to do a big round of burst damage in order to take out one or maybe even more enemies in a single round would be the way to go with this character, I think. And so that's how I'm going to try and build them. That's what I'm going to be focused on. And I should probably warn you, I wouldn't necessarily consider the character that I'm going to build today like an arcane archer character per se. It's a build that takes that concept of the arcane archer, a ranged weapon user who like couples their attacks with magic for basically like a ranged gish type character. And Yes, they do take several levels of Arcane Archer, but it's not predominantly an Arcane Archer build, right? The multiclassing that we do will be with the aim of making the Arcane Archer features really shine, but we're predominantly going to start off with and then finish with another class. That said, throughout I will be talking about how you might tweak what I've done to sort of create a character that is focused primarily on being an Arcane Archer, kind of picking up on some of the things that we're doing, some of the options, and I think that either path would work really well. So if you really want to make a character that's mostly an Arcane Archer, I'm hoping that you'll find some good ideas here on how to make the most of it. And so... I proudly present episode 78, the bowcaster? <laughs> How about the arcane spellbow? And of course, check out the fantastic artwork by my friend Randall Hampton. Each week he'll draw up something amazing for the character concept that I send to him. I love what he's done here. The look and feel and effects and details are super on point and he does a fantastic job as always. Thank you, Randall. If you're interested in following Randall, perhaps commissioning him to draw your own character, I'll put links in the video description on how to do so. All right, let's jump in. At level one, for our class, we are going to start fighter here. I think that's our best option of the classes that I want to explore, as it often is for weapon attack based spellcasting characters. We get constitution saving throw proficiency, which is going to be great for our concentration checks, but also starting as a fighter gives us better equipment options, better equipment proficiencies, and a very important fighting style. So yes, when we first meet our champion, they are an archer. I'd guess a professional soldier or maybe adventurer for hire, and they're particularly skilled with the bow. But perhaps have this desire to take their skill to the next level. I think for me, I might play this character as being like frustrated almost with their inability to improve their own archery skill via traditional means. And they are desperate to do just about anything to be the greatest, deadliest, most devastating hero to ever wield a bow. As for our race, I'm going to recommend that we go not custom lineage, that's overused, Variant human, <laughs> the um, slightly less used version of the free feet options for me anyway, these days. Yeah, variant human is good here for us. There are no fewer than three feats that I plan on taking with this build. And in fact, I'd love to get a fourth if I could. Obviously we could go a different route, but I think nothing will bring our character online quicker than a free feat will. So here we are. Also variant human because 
We're not planning on taking any half feats to bolster our main stat, so I think we're better off with a plus one and a plus one as opposed to a plus two. As for what the free feat is, I think we gotta go sharpshooter to start. That all-important feat for ranged weapon users everywhere, uh, letting us choose when we make attacks with a ranged weapon to add 10 to the damage at the expense of minus five to hit. At this level currently, it's not something that we're necessarily gonna wanna have turned on all of the time, but as a ranged weapon user, we will be better off, early on especially, than our melee cousins with their great weapon master feat, as we will see in a moment. And we probably will want it turned on more often than not. Also, with sharpshooter, we suffer no disadvantage when attacking from long range, and that's going to be important for us. Remember, most ranged weapons have two numbers, right? A, a number at which you can attack without disadvantage, and then a longer range, bigger number that you can still make attacks, but with disadvantage. Sharpshooters don't suffer that disadvantage. Also, we will ignore half and three quarters cover when an enemy is trying to take cover. It is the perfect crackshot feat. As for those ability scores, assuming, as always, that we're going with the point by method, I recommend that we start with a 15 dexterity and take a plus one there, a 15 charisma, and take a plus one there, and a 15 constitution, leaving us with eights in everything else. I love my high-risk, high-reward characters, don't I? Arcane archers do benefit a little bit from a higher intelligence score. Obviously, you could take, say, like a lower con and or a lower charisma and bring that intelligence up a little bit, or even your wisdom if you're concerned about your wisdom saving throw. I don't think we're going to care too much about our intelligence-based spell save DC, but we'll get into that later on. As for equipment, I'm going to recommend that we go with the gold buy route, and we buy ourselves some scale mail, medium armor, and a longbow, some arrows, and whatever other necessities you may have. Maybe a finesse melee weapon for those occasions when somebody's all up in your business. Right now, even though we are focusing on dexterity, we will still be better off with medium armor than we would even with studded leather. You could, of course, get heavy armor eventually once you can afford plate mail. Your AC would be better off, but with our low strength score, that would mean that we would suffer a 10-foot move speed penalty if we equipped plate, and that's a bit of a bummer. Not a huge death blow since we are a ranged character, but as you'll see later, we might actually want to be moving around quite a bit during combat, so I prefer prefer to go with medium armor here, at least maybe until you can find some mithril plate mail or something. As a fighter, one, we get a couple of features. We get second wind, which lets us heal ourselves for 1d10 plus our fighter level once per short rest as a bonus action. Great feature, especially early game as you're trying to stay alive. And then we also get, of course, a fighting style. And I'm going to recommend, no, insist that we take uh, the archery fighting style. The best fighting style in the game, as far as I'm concerned. And the reason why we have the edge on our great weapon master cousins, at least as far as the minus five plus ten feats are concerned, right? Having plus two to hit is just so much better than any damage bonuses that melee users get, especially when you're taking a minus five to hit in order to add big damage like we do with sharpshooter. This just makes that sharpshooter penalty to hit a lot less painful. But then at level two, something has taken note of our champion's desperation to be the greatest archer the world has ever seen. And they have approached us with an offer. Your oath of service to them 
for greater power. Power beyond what endless hours of training have thus far been able to provide. Now, this otherworldly patron might not necessarily have nefarious intent, right? In fact, I think it likely that they don't. But regardless of their reasons, we enter a pact with them as the promise of additional power is too much to resist. So yes, we are going with warlock levels. But guess what? We're not going Hexblade. You thought we were going Hexblade, didn't you? No. At level one, warlocks get their subclass, their otherworldly patron, and we are going with the genie patron. So I want to know, did you find your genie in a bottle? In a lamp? Or did they find you? The first thing we have to decide is, what is our genie's kind? This choice is going to give you a selection of additional spells based on your genie's type, among other things. And yes, we are going to take the Dao genie as our genie kind. Dao genies being affiliated with the element of earth. So as a genie warlock, our genie has gifted us a special vessel, a lamp, an urn, uh, maybe even a ring or a hollow statue that we can use as a spellcasting focus, but then also lets you once per day vanish inside of your vessel for a number of hours equal to twice your proficiency bonus. So four hours right now. That's awesome. You can hear what's going on outside. You can store stuff in there. So it's kind of like a free super bag of holding. As like ribbon features go, this one is pretty amazing. I wouldn't even really call it a ribbon feature. But then more importantly for us, we get Genie's Wrath, which lets us add a bonus in damage equal to our proficiency bonus once per turn when we make an attack. The damage type is based on our genie's type, and as a Dao genie, we do additional bludgeoning damage, again, once per turn on an attack. This, of course, will be important for us to remember, so don't forget. And then, of course, as a warlock at level one, we get spells, we get some cantrips, and some first level spells. You know, normally warlocks are gonna take Eldritch Blast, as it can be a very powerful cantrip. As a ranged weapon user, though, I don't think we're going to really need it much most of the time. So I would just say pick your favorites here, but maybe with a focus on utility, I think. As for first level spells, the only one that I'm going to say that we really need to make sure we have is Hex. Hex kind of gets a bad rap sometimes for being an inefficient spell, because even though it adds a d6 of damage to your target whenever you hit them with an attack, it requires a bonus action to cast, but then also to transfer to another target when the one you currently have hexed dies. Of course, as I've already mentioned, the thing about arcane archer builds is that they sort of famously don't have a weaponized bonus action, so using hex is a little less painful for us, maybe. And it's a decent little damage bump. Aside from hex, I'd say pick your favorite spells, but do keep in mind the way that warlock spells work, just as a refresher if you need it. They reset on a short rest, and even if you multi-class later with a spellcasting class, your warlock spell slots and the spell slots you get from another class do not mix, they do not stack or add to each other or anything like that. Right now we only have one spell slot, though it does reset on a short rest. So that's your consolation prize. At level three, we would be a warlock two, and we get Eldritch Invocations. Um, they are one of my favorite things about warlocks. There are just a ton of options for us to choose from, and they do things from give us like nice utility bonuses to defensive options to letting us cast spells for free, enhancing our existing spells or attacks, etc., etc. We get two invocations for now, 
and I would just say for now probably to pick your favorites. Later on we're going to have some fairly strict requirements for the invocations that we use, but at the moment, you know, Eldritch Mind would be a great way to help us not lose concentration. It gives us advantage on our concentration checks. Armor of Shadows actually would be nice for right now, I think, letting you cast Mage Armor on yourself at will. That would actually give us a 16 armor class. Just as good as Scale Mail, but without the disadvantage to stealth checks. Might as well go naked. Might as well go naked. Anyway, have fun with it for now. We can swap out our invocations when we gain a level in Warlock, and we will be doing that later. In fact, we're going to do it next level. So at level four, we would be a Warlock three, and we get our Pact Boon. We get a special boon granted us by our patron, and we are going to take the Pact of the Blade, of course. Pact of the Blade lets us just create a packed weapon in our hand with an action that counts as magical for the purpose of overcoming non-magical resistance. This weapon has to be a melee weapon unless we take the improved packed weapon invocation. Be sure to swap out one of your invocations now for that. Improved packed weapon lets our weapon be a bow or a crossbow. It lets it count as a spellcasting focus, which is nice. So now we actually have like our genie or ring or whatever our vessel is and our packed weapon either can be a spell focus. That's great. And it gives us a plus one to hit and damage with our packed weapon. All super happy things. Also as a warlock three, our spell slots bump up to second level. And, and we have two of them now, by the way, we, we got our second one last level. I guess I should have mentioned that. And so as far as second level warlock spells go, there are many great and powerful and fun ones. There aren't any that I would plan on using in combat here, I don't think, so I'm just going to say pick your favorites. Yes, if we wanted to, we could use darkness, cast it on ourselves, take the devil's sight invocation, and now we can see in magical darkness, and most enemies aren't going to be able to see us, give, therefore giving us advantage on our attacks against them, things like that. We've used this plenty of times throughout the history of this channel, though it's been a really long time actually that I've done anything like that with the character. But anyway, and I, I will say that while this tactic can be fairly disruptive for enemies and allies alike, to say nothing of the headache it will cause your DM, speaking from personal experience, it is much less painful, I think, as a ranged character. So for now, sure, if you're having a hard time hitting, feel free to cover yourself in darkness and get advantage, especially if you're using sharpshooter. This, depending on the enemy ACs, could be a nice damage increase, even if you're giving up that hex damage. That said, I don't anticipate us needing this tactic for very long, because at level 5, we would be a Warlock 4 and we get our first ability score increase or feat. And yes, it's true that as a sharpshooter user especially, advantage is the thing that's going to give our damage the biggest lift, at least at those middling and higher enemy armor classes. But I would hate to give up my concentration to get advantage if I could find a different way to gain advantage, at least during our Nova round, without using a spell. Wouldn't that be worth a feat? I think it would. So, with our ability score increase or feat at level 4 Warlock, we're going to take the Fighting Initiate feat, which lets us gain another fighting style. And we're going to take the Superior Technique fighting style, which lets us use one Battlemaster maneuver from the Battlemaster subclass, and gives us one d6 superiority die with which to fuel that maneuver. Maybe this was a trick that we learned uh, while we were living the soldiering life, and we've been trying to perfect it all this time, but we are taking a page here from the Needler 
handbook and going with the quick toss maneuver. Quick toss lets you, as a bonus action, expend that superiority die that we have, which refreshes on a short rest, by the way, and make a ranged attack with a weapon that has the thrown property. What weapon are we throwing, you may ask? Why, the net, of course. Let's talk about nets, baby. <laughs> so bad. Um, oof, where was I? Right, nets. So with a net, you throw it out, and if it hits, it does zero damage, but then the creature you hit with it is restrained. So they can't move, they have disadvantage on dexterity saving throws, and disadvantage on their attacks, and most importantly for us, attacks made against them have advantage. On the creature's turn, they only have to make a DC 10 strength check to get out of that net, or deal five slashing damage to it and it only has a 10 AC, and that is going to destroy the net. So it's unlikely to last for longer than one turn, right? But there is no save against that restrain initially. You just have to hit them. Let's clarify some mechanics. We read that when you use an action, bonus action, or reaction to attack with a net, you can make only one attack, regardless of the number of attacks you can normally make. The wording, I think, is a little confusing here, but Jeremy Crawford has clarified that what this means is that if you make an attack with the net using your action, then you can't take any more attacks with your action. Or, if you make it with your bonus action, then you can't take any more attacks with your bonus action, if for some reason you're getting multiple attacks with your bonus action. Look Look it up if you need to, but under that ruling, if we spend our superiority die for the quick toss maneuver, we can toss the net as a bonus action, ensnare them, restrain them, right, and then make our other weapon attacks with our action that round, now with advantage. What about the range problem with nets, you might be asking? Uh, nets have a normal range of 5 feet, but making a ranged attack against an enemy within five feet of you would be made with disadvantage, right? So that's out for us. And they have a long range of 15 feet, but as we mentioned earlier, long ranges are made with disadvantage too, unless we have the sharpshooter feet, and we do. So no problem. We just have to move up to within 15 feet of our enemy and toss that net. As far as the damage goes, I'm assuming that we will not get to add the d6 of damage from our superiority die, even though Quick Toss usually lets us do that. The Quick Toss maneuver tells us that we get to add a d6 in damage to the weapon damage roll, but since the net deals zero damage and there is then no damage roll, I'm going to assume that at your table there's not going to be any additional damage allowed. That said, I know that at many of your tables you can add additional damage damage to net attacks. People say, well, you put barbs in the net or it's weighted or whatever, and, and that's fine. However it works at your table, just know that when I crunch the numbers, I'm not going to assume that additional d6 of damage. So for the numbers that I'm reporting on, I'm, I might actually be under-reporting at your table. And if so, congratulations. One great thing about the net is even though it's fairly easy for an enemy to break out of, doing so does require their action. So even if they do break out, we will have forced them to waste their turn in order to do so. Or at the very least, one of their attacks, assuming that they do slashing damage. And we're actually going to pile on another way to make life a little bit more miserable for them in this regard later, so keep it in mind. Also, in case it wasn't already obvious, you're going to need a lot of nets. I hope by now you've got a little spending cash available. They're not too terribly expensive, they're just one gold piece each, and we're really only going to be using them probably once per short rest, but 
still keep a healthy supply on hand just fill up your genie's vessel with piles and piles of nets at level six we would be a warlock five and that's a nice little power spike for us so first up we get a third invocation and that's fantastic because there are two invocations that are available to us now at fifth level that we really really have to have first of course is thirsting blade that's basically the warlock's version of extra attack and then as for that third invocation you know what really stinks about divine smite it only works on melee weapon attacks that makes it incredibly difficult to make an effective ranged paladin character right or at least it makes it incredibly frustrating to try and do so but you know what's awesome about warlock smites yep no melee weapon required so yes as our third invocation let's grab eldritch smite and now if we expend one of our admittedly very precious spell slots to do so we can add a d8 of damage plus 1d8 more for every level of spell slot we expend when we hit a creature with an attack and it can come from a longbow so for us currently with third level spell slots which we have now at as a fifth level warlock that would be an extra 4d8 damage on a hit now you can only do this once per turn which is fine because we don't really have the spell slots to spare and also you do have the option when you hit them with eldritch smite to knock them prone i probably wouldn't do that unless it was on your second attack i mean if they're prone you have disadvantage to try and hit them from ranged though there is potentially some cool stuff going on where if they're restrained by your net and you knock them prone their movement speed is zero and that means they can't stand up until they get out of the net but they're probably going to try and get out of the net anyway on their turn but anyway if they're prone your melee allies would have advantage on attacks against them so it might be worth doing for their sake at least something to consider and as i mentioned yes as a warlock five we have third level spells now and third level spell slots so there are a lot of fantastic third level warlock spells for control and utility especially i think but as for what we should be using for our nova round the only one i'm going to really recommend here is that we pick up spirit shroud and replace hex with that for our go-to concentration going forward spirit shroud is fantastic in that we cast it as a bonus action but then for the next minute we just deal an extra 1d8 of damage to every attack we land it doesn't have to be on a specifically hexed target anymore right and we don't have to transfer it to somebody else with a bonus action we get to choose what the damage type is radiant necrotic or cold that's kind of cool and creatures who take this damage can't regain hit points until the start of your next turn also any creature of your choice that starts its turn within 10 feet of you does have their movement speed reduced by 10 feet until the start of your next turn and that's nice but it brings up the one potential challenge with spirit shroud and that is that in order for all of these things to happen for the damage to be dealt etc you have to be making attacks against enemies that are within 10 feet of you i would be a little more concerned about that if we weren't already needing to be within 15 feet of the enemies for our net tactic to work and so so this is why I said earlier that you didn't want to have to deal with move speed penalties imposed by heavy armor because I imagine we're going to be doing a fair bit of like running up, attacking, and then retreating again when we're done in a bit of a like a guerrilla hit and run tactic style of combat. So yes, speaking of our damage, at level 6 it's time for our first damage report. And let's talk about what our combat, and during our Nova round especially, is going to look like right now. The beginning of combat, round 1, you get Spirit Shroud going as you, with your bonus action. You move up to 10 feet away, you hit your enemy with a couple of shots, and then retreat if you can. Yes, we need a round to kind of get everything going for our Nova, but it's not like you're just sitting there like casting buffs on yourself or anything without doing any damage. So I don't 
feel too bad about needing a round of setup here. But round two is when we go Nova. You move up to your target and quick toss to throw out a net as a bonus action. Assuming it hits and they are restrained, you then hit them with two more shots using sharpshooter, of course, unloading your Eldritch Smite if and when you hit as well. And thanks to the advantage, we're gonna have an increased crit chance and therefore, you know, piling on that Smite during this Nova round is potentially going to be really nice for us. Now, of course, there's no reason you would have to restrain them in a net first before you used Eldritch Smite, right? If you hit them on round one, feel free to smite if you'd like. Just know that when I calculate numbers here, I'm assuming that we have advantage on our attacks thanks to the net. And like I said, our crit chance will be a lot higher, meaning that you might be better off holding on to that smite for when they are restrained in the hopes that you can land a critical and then really go Nova. All told, we're going to be doing 1d8 on each attack for our longbow, 1d8 for spirit shroud, 3 for our dexterity, 10 for sharpshooter, and then once per turn we're going to add 3 from our genie's wrath and 4d8 for eldritch smite potentially for a total of 8d8 plus 29 damage. And so against an enemy with a 10 armor class we would do on average 65 damage in that one single round and against an enemy with a 15 armor class it would be 52. That's pretty solid burst damage. It puts us kind of toward the bottom of the tier one group compared to other tier one uh, builds at this level, or maybe like the top of tier two. And for those who don't know, check the video description. I always post spreadsheets and graphs and compare, you know, other builds of the same type that I've done to one another to see how they stack up. So yeah, damage is pretty decent, but it's about to get a lot better. At level seven, I want to go back to fighter here to get to arcane archer finally of course and to just really take our burst damage to the next level so as a fighter two here we would get action surge of course it's hard to beat action surge for burst damage letting us once per short rest just take two actions so we would get four attacks on our turn at level eight we would be a fighter three and we get our martial archetype our fighter subclass and yes of course we are going with arcane archer now if we had wanted to you absolutely could have just beelined straight to fighter five from the get-go i think if getting to arcane archer faster is really important to you and to how you envision this character it would mean actually a little bit more damage during our nova round at level six but it's really only a teeny bit better at like typical enemy armor classes that you'd probably be seeing at these levels but the middling levels of this character's career eight nine through 13 to all the way up to 17 actually would be slightly too significantly worse damage wise even after we got to fighter level 11 and got that third attack actually and i've, I've crunched the numbers on on both options and, and several others actually <laughs> but you know doing this is absolutely a viable route i would just make sure if you went that way to get one level of dao genie at some point probably after fighter 5 so that you could pick up the synergy that we're about to discuss. But before we do that, now that we've got our most important features in place with our Arcane Archer, let's read a description of this character from my friends over at Describe, who are the sponsors of this week's video. She draws the string of her bow with a creak as its supple fibers stretch. Tendrils of green and purple magic twine down her arm, surging into the hand that holds the arrow steady. Through gritted teeth, she growls, don't miss and releases the arrow. It whistles toward the target, and just before impact, 
bursts into a tangle of vines. They slap against the quarry, wrapping around them in a cocoon of green sinews and thorns. From the ground, another form rises, a genie with a magnificent grin. He appraises the fallen enemy with a wiggle of his brow. As he moves, crumbs of dark soil fall from his purely slate body. Miss? This weakling? He chuckles, sounding like rocks tumbling down a mountain. <laughs> Oh, that's so good. Oh, so good. I am super thrilled to have Describe as a continued sponsor. I really love, obviously, the content they create. I've talked to you guys several times in the past about Describe. I love them just as much now as I did then. For those who haven't heard about them, Describe is a fantastic online tool that basically creates the awesome, well-written box text that you get in official D&D adventures, describing a setting, sometimes an important character, a spell, an action, all kinds of stuff. If, if you've ever wished that you could have that quality of descriptive writing for your own homebrew campaigns, whether a setting, an NPC, or even as a player for your own character or an important weapon or an awesome spell that you cast or attack that you make, well, with Describe, you can. Anyone who wants to can sign up for a free account and get access to a huge portion of their library of thousands of scenes, characters, spells, items, actions, and more. But the best part about them, in my opinion, is that if you become a subscriber at the hero level, you can submit requests yourself for anything you want a professional writer to describe for you. That's what I did for the spell bow that I created today, and what I just read is what I got back from them. And it's so fantastic. The team is filled with professional writers, some of whom even used to work for Wizards of the Coast themselves. Now, speaking of subscriptions, Describe has implemented some really great changes in recent weeks, and I wanted to highlight one of those today. They've created new and improved subscription levels, including my favorite, the new player subscription level, which is filled with hundreds and hundreds of scenes, and they're growing every day. And these are written for players and for your characters, including things like insults, which are my favorite, actually. There's there's like a ton of insults in the database and, and constantly growing, and no bard casting vicious mockery should ever leave home without. The player-level subscription gets you access to all kinds of great stuff that's written in the first person. So you could read right off the page when asked by your DM to describe a spell or a particular spectacular attack that you might be making, or what happens to you when you fail a saving throw against becoming charmed. All fantastic and useful and flavorful little set pieces. Please be sure to check out Describe if you haven't yet. Go sign up for a free account at the very least. Play around with what's available. You won't regret it. When you go, be sure to use this link below so that they know you heard about them from me. It's Describe.com D4, and I'll put the link in the video description as well, of course, but again, Describe.com D4, and if you do decide to purchase a subscription, they're very affordable, I think, and you can use the code D4 for at checkout and you'll get 10% uh, off. Thanks everyone over at Describe. You guys are fantastic and let's jump back into the build. So first up, as an arcane archer, you get arcane archer lore, which gives us proficiency in the arcana or nature skill and lets us learn the prestidigitation or druid craft cantrip for free. Man, free prestidigitation? Best cantrip ever. But then, of course, we also get the defining feature of the subclass, Arcane Shot. So we get two Arcane Shot options to choose from out of a short list, and we can use one of those Arcane Shots to enhance our attack with a short bow or a long bow once per turn and twice per short rest. Now, one complaint that's commonly made about Arcane Archers is that 
they don't get enough uses of their arcane shot. And I happen to agree with that particular criticism. I mean, two per short rest is kind of a bummer. And you do later get more arcane shot options at seven and 10 and 15. And I don't remember, but you don't actually get any more uses of your arcane shot. And, and that feels wrong to me. So anyway, if I were the DM, I think I'd, I'd allow additional uses, Corey. <laughs> but anyway, this is our lot. As for which arcane shot options we should take, the choices are Grasping Arrow, and it doesn't really matter because you should basically just use Grasping Arrow all the time. <laughs> I'm kidding. Kind of. Not really, actually. I mean, sure, there are a lot of cool and fun options. Bursting Arrow for some good old-fashioned area of effect damage. It's not a lot, but you know, could be useful for clearing out some low hit point enemies. Seeking arrow might be my favorite from like a coolness factor, firing basically like a heat seeking missile arrow at your enemy. Shadow arrow could essentially blind your target. Banishing arrow could send them to the Feywild for a round, but grasping arrow is, in my opinion, and especially for this build, far and away the most powerful option and the one that I would expect us to use 99% of the time. Here's how it works. When you hit the enemy, Magical and poisonous brambles wrap around the target, dealing 2d6 poison damage initially, reducing their speed by 10 feet, and doing an additional 2d6 damage the first time on a turn they move a foot or more without teleporting. There is very specifically no verbiage here stating that they have to move of their own free will or anything like that. And Jeremy Crawford has said that it works if they are forcefully moved. That's important. So now, we have this super fantastic combo where we are throwing out a net at our enemy, entangling them in it, and then immediately after hitting them with magical ensnaring thorny vines. They are wrapped up tight. If they want to get rid of the brambles from our grasping arrow, they can using their action and with a successful athletics check against our DC that's modified by our intelligence. And this is why I mentioned at the beginning that we might want to consider, you know, bumping our intelligence a little bit more, but either way, it's not going to be an incredibly high DC. So I don't expect these grasping arrow brambles to really last very long, but here's the thing. They already theoretically are restrained by the net, right? It's going to take their action to get out of that. It's also going to take their action to get out of the brambles. They could just decide to ignore both, I suppose, but if they do, their speed is zero, their attacks are made with disadvantage, so I would think that they would probably at least try to spend an action to get out of the net, right? So they've just wasted one turn. Then, are they gonna move? If so, they're gonna be taking additional damage, so I would think that they'd probably just try and stay put and just use their action on their next turn to try and get out of the brambles, but by then, let's be honest, they're probably dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is so fun. But guess what? We haven't even got to the best part yet, because at level nine, we're a fighter four, and this is the best part. We get an ability score increase or feat as a fighter four. And you might be thinking, we need to bump our dexterity, right? <laughs> can, can we please bump our dexterity now? Look at it, it's just so sad. It's just still sitting there at a 16 all this time. It needs some love. Just, just one little ability score in- No, no dex for you. I mean, don't get me wrong, I am absolutely dying to increase our dexterity here. I really am. But the main reason that we really went Dao Genie Warlock in the first place, I mean, in addition to the great spells and invocations and things, of course, was to set up this fun little trick. So, okay, with the feet here, we're going to take the Crusher feet, not bump our dexterity. And Crusher, 
lets us bump our strength or constitution by one. And remember, we have a 15 constitution, so now we've got a nice 16, which is great. And then with Crusher, once per turn, if we hit a creature with an attack that deals bludgeoning damage, you can move it five feet to an unoccupied space, so long as they're no more than one size larger than you. And then also, when you score a critical hit, against the enemy attack rolls against them including attack rolls from your allies are made with advantage until the start of your next turn this is a fantastic feat so for our level 9 damage report let's put it all together right round one same thing fire up spirit shroud make a couple of attacks round two you run up you quick toss a net they're restrained you make two attacks hitting them with eldritch smite and grasping arrow dealing 2d6 of poison damage and since the damage we get from the Dao Genie Warlock is bludgeoning and we have Crusher, we can move them. And when we move them, they take an extra 2d6 of damage from our Grasping Arrow. Then, assuming they're still alive, you Action Surge, you hit them with two more attacks, all made with advantage, all piling on Spirit Shroud damage and Sharpshooter bonuses and cackling with glee. Your poor enemy, right? Net! Ah! Magical Brambles! Ow! Arrow! Push! Ow! Thorn damage! Eldritch Smite! Kaboom! Arrow, arrow, arrow! They will be double entangled and filled with so many arrows and thorns that they'll look like a pincushion. And I just love it. So, against an enemy with a 10 armor class, we would here, on average, do 127 damage total. And against an enemy with a 16 armor class, it would be 103 damage on average. So, right, that's almost double since last time we checked. Now, here's the question. Should you be expending all of those resources for a single glorious round of combat? Of course you should. <laughs> okay, fine. Maybe not. I'm particularly squeamish, I think, about Eldritch Smite, to be honest, since we do only have two spell slots after all. But hey, Nova builds are intended to take out one nasty enemy in one fell swoop, so the odds of the fight shift in your team's favor right up front, right? If that means blowing all or most of your resources in one round of combat, it will often be worth it to get action economy working in your favor, right? But of course, feel free to scale it back a bit if you'd rather hold on to that second spell slot for another upcoming combat, especially if you're pretty sure your short rests are going to be limited. You know, maybe Maybe save that Eldritch Smite for your final attack. It'd be a bummer if you missed on that final attack and they were almost dead, right? I've suffered many times from playing it overly cautious in the interest of holding on to resources only to regret it later. At level 10, at level 10, I considered a lot of options here for potentially taking a third class, but in the end, I think we're just going to be best off going back to Warlock, and in fact, I'm going to do so for the rest of our career. Now, sure, you could stick with Fighter to get that sweet, sweet third attack at Fighter level 11, but that's seven levels away right now, and we're already level 10, right? And between now and then, Fighters just don't get much by way of power and damage increases. I mean, Arcane Archers do get a pretty decent level 7 feature that lets them take a missed shot and like curve it with a bonus action to try and hit another target. That's that's really not bad, but it also only works if you fail at the thing you're actually trying to do. So I think personally, I would rather just find ways to try and make the thing that I'm actually trying to do better. And I think the easiest way to get there is by scaling our spells and features from more warlock levels. So 
That's what we're going to do. And boy, howdy, are we rewarded as a Warlock 6 for going back to Warlock because we get Elemental Gift. It's, it's like our genie was just sitting there trying to think of amazing ways to bribe us, to lure us back to the fold. Please come back to me, please. What can I do? I'll let you fly. So yeah, now we have resist resistance to bludgeoning damage, uh, first of all, thanks to our Dao Genie, and then proficiency bonus times per day, we can give ourselves a flying speed of 30 feet for 10 minutes with a simple bonus action, which is just phenomenal, honestly, and you probably should have taken this sooner. <laughs> why, did, why did you wait this long? Flight, what's wrong with you? It's not all about the numbers, people. At level 11, we would be a Warlock 7, and our Warlock spells go to fourth level and we get fourth level spells obviously first up that means that eldritch smite would scale up to 5d8 that's nice but as far as which fourth level spells we should consider there are too many great options to name them all but i mean dimension door of course banishment i really like the new raul thims psychic lance i think i'm pronouncing that right uh, we got that from Fizzbands. It, it does pretty decent single target damage but then incapacitates its victim on a failed intelligence saving throw Shadow of Moil, of course, would give you advantage on your attacks against enemies who can't typically see you because you're heavily obscured, right? Um, among other benefits, actually. And could arguably become your new go-to concentration versus enemies with a really high armor class, I think, especially. I'm going to assume that we're sticking with Spirit Shroud for now, but know your options, pick your favorites. We also get a fourth invocation here as well. And and again, I'm going to say pick your favorite. There, there are a lot of great ones for defense, utility, fun. I think if it were me, I'd probably go with either Tomb of Levistus, which is kind of like a break glass in case of emergency defense mechanism that in encases you in ice. It's really cool. Or Trickster's Escape, actually, uh, for a free use of the freedom of movement spell once per day, which can be potentially really powerful. But do what you will. Have fun with it. At level 12, we would be a Warlock 8, and we get another ability score increase or feat. And yes, finally, I think we can let ourselves bump our dexterity. The truth is this, you know, leaving our dexterity to languish for this long has been painful, but when presented with either the crusher feet or a dexterity bump or you know netting your targets to get advantage or a dexterity bump the feats that we've taken thus far have always been better for us numbers wise mechanically speaking at least on our nova round of course that means we're slightly worse outside of our nova round but not by a lot i mean you know plus one to hit and plus one to damage is isn't nothing but it's also not the end of the world if we've waited this long for it that said if you wanted to increase your dexterity first before you took the quick toss i don't think i'd blame you in that case i'd probably still start with sharpshooter as your free feat then take dexterity as your first ability score increase at warlock four so at least we'd be at an 18 and then crusher at fighter four still so that we could at least take advantage of you know that dow push on the grasping arrow synergy thing and then maybe quick toss here at this for advantage once per short rest on your nova round but hey I'm trying to get as much burst damage as I can out of our Nova round, and sometimes that means being unreasonable. You be reasonable. At level 13, we would be a Warlock 9, 
and we get fifth level spells and fifth level spell slots. That means, first and foremost for us, that we can cast Spirit Shroud now and do 2d8 damage per hit, which is great. And then here's a fun thing about Eldritch Smite. Unlike its divine cousin, it does not cap at 5d8. So it would do 68 damage now if we spent a spell slot for it. Of course, it is capped from this point on, unfortunately, because to my great sorrow, warlock spell slots are capped at fifth level. From from this point on, it's all mystic arcanums, uh, which aren't quite the same thing, unfortunately, but more on that later. As for what fifth level spells we should take, it's admittedly getting even harder for me to justify using a spell slot for smite, even though 68 damage is nice. If we had more of them, sure, but I mean, would you rather smite one target for 6d8 damage or use synaptic static for 8d6 damage to multiple enemies and force all of them to subtract a d6 from all of their attacks, ability checks, and concentration checks for the next minute. Or, you know, cast hold monster, which will paralyze, paralyze basically any enemy that's not undead on a failed wisdom saving throw. Of course, we haven't really been prioritizing our charisma score here either. So if we're at a 16 charisma, you know, our spell save DC is just going to be kind of okay, decent. So, you know, that's something to keep in mind. And again, you know, there's plenty of value in burst damage and just taking out a target, even if it means spending all of your resources. Anyway, I'm going to assume that we're still doing what we're doing when I crunch the numbers, but of course, know your options. Also at this level, we do get a fifth invocation now. And again, I'm just going to say, pick your favorites. Lots of cool, fun, potent, powerful options. For our level 13 damage report then, the only things that have really changed since last time are that our smite has gone up by 2d8 and our spirit shroud has gone up by 1d8 per attack. Oh, and we finally got a dexterity bump. Oh, and we can fly. But anyway, against an enemy with a 10 armor class, we would on average do 168 damage. And against an enemy with a 17 armor class, it would be 147 damage on average during that Nova round. That's still quite strong, putting us near the top of tier two builds now compared to others that I've done to date at this level. But for the final few levels here, we don't unfortunately gain a ton to our burst round if we stick with warlock you know like i said warlock spell slots only go to fifth level which means that the scaling on smite and spirit shroud have stopped and so with that in mind like i said i i was tempted to try and maybe go a different route and yet there are a lot of benefits to sticking with warlock that might not necessarily show up on the spreadsheet and i think they're strong enough that i would really have a hard time passing them up in pursuit of a little more damage we do get a little more damage right now i know that sounds weird coming from me but sometimes i'm a conundrum i guess anyway at level 14 we would be a warlock 10 and as a genie warlock 10 we get sanctuary vessel which is just a fantastic feature that is super unique to us so it allows us to basically bring all of our friends with us into our magic lamp so yeah as a bonus action now we can take five companions into our vessel with us and keep in mind that we can be in there for double our proficiency bonus so that means right now we can be in there for up to 10 hours so that's more than enough time to take a long rest potentially if we need to. I can see that coming in handy. If you your vessel's a little ring and you can stow it away in the middle of a dungeon somewhere safe and take a long rest, that's huge. Just hope that like a rat doesn't come along and find it and take it away down to the dragon's lair before you're high enough level to deal with it. But even if you don't decide to try and take a long rest in there, anyone who stays in there for more than 10 minutes gets the benefit of a short rest. And 
they get to add your proficiency bonus to the hit points they regain if they spend hit dice. What a marvelous host you are. That is actually a really powerful ability, and for someone who has all of these fantastic burst damage abilities that reset on a short rest, including two fifth level spell slots, action surge, and your superiority die, it's actually really amazing. You can now almost guarantee that you can get at least a short rest in all but the most dire of circumstances. And that's going to really increase the frequency with which you can burst, if not necessarily the level at which you do so. And the value of that should not be underestimated. At level 15, we would be a Warlock 11. And speaking of how amazing it is to have two fifth level spell slots that reset on a short rest, we now get a third. And Warlocks take a lot of guff for their limited spell slot use, and I get it. As someone who's been playing a mostly Warlock character in game for the better part of a year now, it can be painful. But there is something to be said, especially now, for having three fifth level spell slots that reset on a short rest, right? Yeah, I mean, for sure we miss being able to just spend spell slots willy-nilly on whatever whim we may have. You know, the wizards and sorcerers and bards of the world are just throwing around shield and misty step and hypnotic pattern like they're going out of style. And we have to be a little miserly with our spell slots, like, like a golem with the ring of one power, right? My precious spell slots. But especially when we hit Warlock 11, we get to feel pretty cool about our three fifth level spell slots that reset on a short rest. We might not have near limitless use of silvery barbs, but arguably we get to use some of those really powerful, you know, synaptic static hold monster level spells now more often in a day than any other caster class, and that feels pretty great. Especially because at Warlock 11, we do get our first Mystic Arcanum, so we get a sixth level spell now. I do really wish that we could just get a new and additional sixth level spell slot here that we could use for a six level spell or to upcast something else but unfortunately it doesn't work that way we get to choose one six level spell and we can cast it once per day without spending a spell slot so choose wisely there are a ton of fun and crazy powerful options to choose from i think if it were me i'd probably go with mass suggestion doesn't require concentration and it can be such a fun and fantastic multiple enemy control spell, right? I think it'd be hard to pass up, but pick your favorite. At level 16, we would be a Warlock 12, and we get another ability score increase or feat, which means we finally get to cap our dexterity at 20. Took us long enough. And then we do get a sixth invocation as well, and it's really too bad that we weren't able to get more ability score increases, as I would have loved to increase our charisma a little more at some point. Not only because it would improve our spell save DC, but also at Warlock 12 for that sixth invocation that we get. I'm going to recommend we take the Life Drinker invocation, which is now available to us, and that lets us add our Charisma modifier to our damage when we hit an enemy with our packed weapon. And then finally, for us, at level 17, we'd be a Warlock 13, and we get seventh level spell for our seventh level mystic arcanum i'm gonna say pick your favorite crown of stars would be potentially a nice way to weaponize our bonus action outside of our nova round uh, since it doesn't require concentration stuff like plane shift and dream of the blue veil can just transport you to other worlds but 
I think I'm probably taking Force Cage. Again, such a great control spell and one that not only doesn't require concentration, but the enemies don't even get to make a saving throw against it, which is extra important for us. For our final damage report, then, the only things that have changed to the numbers are the bump to our dexterity, the bump to our proficiency bonus, and three more damage per attack that we get from Life Drinker, which is not nothing, but it's not a huge increase. But again, like, I have a hard time imagining that we would give up a third spell slot, the ability to give ourselves and our friends a short rest once per day in only a 10 minute time span, and, and maybe even a, a long rest in a pinch, and those really, really powerful 6th and 7th level spells in pursuit of something else. So I'm really pleased with where we ended up. And where we ended up is against an enemy with a 10 armor class on average. During our Nova round, we would do 186 damage. We almost got that bicentennial mark. And against an enemy with an 18 armor class on average, we would do 166 damage during our Nova round. And that's still really strong. We have slipped just a little bit when compared to other Nova builds overall, but we're still kind of like in the middle of tier two builds at this level by comparison. And so final thoughts. The final tier score for this character when you average all of the damage that they do against all enemy armor classes at all of the damage report levels ends up being 118, putting them firmly in the middle of tier two Nova builds, uh, just above the Storm, Sorcerer, Tempest, Cleric, and oh, I guess I'll link to that. I think I have cards to spare this week. And just below the Mercy Monk. But a couple of important things that we need to keep in mind here. The burst damage numbers, while they might not necessarily be top of class, they are very good, especially earlier on in our career, and they are repeatable every short rest, as opposed to a lot of the bigger number characters like the evoker, wizard, the flamethrower, the assassiner, right, that I've done in the past. Those characters can all do more Nova damage, but only once per day. And especially with this character later on, how we can almost get like a free short rest thanks to our genie vessel, that's gonna make a huge difference to the amount of burst damage that we're capable of putting out in an entire day by comparison. What's more, the sustained damage numbers you would get with this character, with sharpshooter, with the archery fighting style, extra damage per hit thanks to spirit shroud and other things, are actually still really quite strong. Better, at least, than the vast majority of the Nova damage characters that I've done to date. So this character has a ton of potential to be both a fantastic and frequent burst damage dealer, and then still a fairly strong sustained damage dealer, really letting you kind of have your cake and eat it too, which I love. And yes, as I've mentioned throughout, if you really wanted to put more emphasis on Arcane Archer here, you absolutely could. Like I said, you know, go go Fighter 5 for extra attack, then probably one level of Dao Warlock to get Hex and that push action from Dao with the Crusher feet, and then go back to Fighter all the way to 11 so you can get that third attack per turn, right, before investing more into Warlock. Going that route would basically mean slightly higher damage numbers during your Nova round early on, worse damage numbers through like the middle of your career, and then slightly stronger numbers in the very late game when you have both that third attack from Fighter and Warlock 5 so you can pick up the Spirit Shroud and Eldritch Smite, etc. It would still be a potentially powerful and very viable and fun character, I think. It would, of course, be a lot less spell 
in the Spellbow, being almost full fighter for most of your career with just a little Warlock dip to give you a, a tiny bit of spell power. So it all just depends on what you're looking for, right, in the character. For me, I tend to prefer a little more caster in my Gish, Spellsword, Spellbow character types, right? I think they bring a little more diversity and variety to the playstyle, um, not to mention just fun power. At the end of the day, if you're looking for a really fun, really versatile, really powerful martial caster mix, I think the Arcane Archer gives you a really solid base to build around, whether you're taking just a few levels of Daolock or you go mostly Daolock. And I can't wait to try it out in game. So that's the build for the week. I love you guys. Thanks so much for watching. I really, really appreciate you. I hope that you enjoyed the show. I hope that you'll check out the other content in the channel and that if you haven't done so, you'll like and subscribe and comment and, and even consider joining the channel. I hope you have a fantastic day. I hope you have a fantastic week. I hope to see you again very soon. And until then, take care. Bye. My oh my, what a wonderful day Plenty of sunshine heading my way zippity doo da zippity I think I got it. I think I got it dialed in. Playing D&D &D itself, then welcome home. I have a spouse who's doing the dishes. <laughs> Mr. Mango's on my shoulder. Hi, Freddy. <laughs> Name that movie. The, the, the one, that second one. Not the first one. The second one. All right. Uh, where was I? For me, the plane, the plane. <laughs> oh, man. I need to build a studio. I'm going to build a studio recording studio one of these days click down here to subscribe and join to the channel <laughs> don't talk about that well i don't even want to say that I, i'm saying that wrong and for those well never mind i'll talk about that later well don't even say that don't say that oh look it's it's the scrubs guys this is zach and this is donald for those who don't know oh dang it Um, <laughs> I'm a terrible Chewbacca. <laughs>